Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, thank you so much that our lives are hid with Christ on high, our Saviour and our God. And Lord, we ask that having been challenged in your word this morning that you would bring us comfort through the gospel of Jesus Christ as it is explained and brought out in these chapters of Malachi. And Lord, we ask that you would grant us the grace to hang on for dear life to our precious High Priest, Jesus Christ. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, we saw uh, in the first talk this morning that the people's relationship in Malachi's day, the people's relationship with God was on the edge. They were ignoring God's love. How have you loved us? They were bringing pathetic sacrifices to God and they were also bringing these sacrifices to God while not really caring about living for God. They were living these hypocritical lives. Uh, In chapter 1 and the last part of chapter 2 that we looked at, the problem belongs to both the priests and to the people. Remember, it was the people who were bringing the dodgy sacrifices, but the priests were complicit in uh, offering them still to God. But in uh, in the first half of chapter 2 and then in the beginning of chapter 3 as well, God begins to address the priests in particular, the the leaders of God's people. So chapter 2 begins... Uh, with these words, and now this admonition is for you, O priests. If you do not listen, and if you do not set your heart to honour my name, says the Lord Almighty, I will send a curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Yes, I have already cursed them, because you have not set your heart to honour me. The priests weren't doing what the priests were supposed to do. God looks back to Levi, to the ancestor of the priestly house, and he describes in verse 5 what the role of a priest ought to be. God says, My covenant was with him, that is with Levi, a covenant of life and peace, and I gave them to him. Uh, This calls for reverence. And he revered me and stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth and nothing false was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness and turned many from sin. For the lips of a priest ought to preserve knowledge and from his mouth men should seek instruction because he is the messenger of the Lord Almighty. So the priests were to revere God and to stand in awe of his name. Priests were to speak the truth and to instruct others in the truth. Their lips were to preserve knowledge. Their lips were to preserve knowledge so much so that other people uh, would come and seek them out and say, teach me about God. The priests were supposed to walk in peace and uprightness and turn people from sin, but they weren't doing that. 
they were actually endorsing the behaviour of the people and leading people into sin. Verse 8, But you have turned from the way and by your teaching you've caused many to stumble. You have violated the covenant with Levi, says the Lord Almighty. So I have caused you to be despised and humiliated before all the people because you have not followed my ways but have shown partiality in matters of the law. One of the great problems in Malachi's day was corrupt leaders. That was a significant problem not only in Malachi's day but also in the New Testament church. Uh, If you read Paul's writings, you constantly find Paul coming into contact with false leaders in the church, people who are undermining the faith of some, people who are distorting the gospel, people who are insisting on certain Old Testament practices that they ought to be continued. People who were saying that the resurrection uh, had already happened. Or if you think of uh, 2 Timothy 3, people who wormed their ways into uh, people's homes, uh, leading them astray. People who were saying that we should go on sinning. Good leaders in the church were as important in Malachi's day as they are today. And yet while good church leaders, good teachers, good pastors, good elders, while those are important, it would be a mistake, I think, for us to think that if only we had better leaders in the church, the church would be more holy. It will be a mistake for us to think that because Well, for one thing, if the apostles couldn't make the church a holy church, you know, what hope do we have? But it would also be a mistake because the ultimate fulfilment of this priestly teaching role is in Jesus Christ himself. You see, what was true of Levi is even more true of Jesus. Malachi says, true instruction was in his mouth and nothing false was on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness and turned many from sin. The writer of Hebrews uh, in in Hebrews chapter 7, all the way almost really through to the end of chapter 10, uh, is talking about the Levitical priesthood. And one of the things that he says is that the Levitical priesthood never made anyone perfect. It couldn't make people perfect. In fact, I'd want to argue that right from the very beginning of the priesthood, it was clear that something was drastically wrong. Uh, I don't know if you remember uh, the book of Leviticus, but in Leviticus chapter 8, in Leviticus chapter 1 to 7, you get all these uh, sacrifices being laid out by God, the sacrifices that the people were supposed to attend to. And then in chapter 8, you get the rules and instructions for the ordination of the priesthood of Aaron and uh, and his sons. Uh, And then in chapter 9 and 10 you get that first ordination ceremony and they go through all these uh, practices, they make all these sacrifices, they dress them up in, uh, in the, the gowns that they need to have and they go through all the washings and anoint them with all the various things that they need to be anointed with and it's this wonderful occasion, <laughs> the first time that these sacrifices laid out by God are offered, the first time that the priests 
do their holy service. And do you remember what happened? Do you remember Nadab and Abihu? And they offer the unauthorized fire? And fire comes out from the altar, doesn't it? It consumes them. Here, here it is. Here's the beginning of the priesthood in Israel and the sacrificial system. Who can come before a holy God? And right from the very beginning of the installation of this first covenant, this old covenant, God is showing that there's something deeper, more sinister that needs to be dealt with. You might think too of the beginning of uh, the books of Samuel. It's strange, I don't know if you've ever thought of how strange it is that a book about the kingship should begin by talking about the priesthood. But Samuel begins by talking about the failure of Eli and the failure of Eli's sons. The whole priestly household was inadequate. And God says in 1 Samuel 2.35, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do all that's in my heart and mind. In many ways, the Old Testament is a search for a people who can serve and live in the presence of God. And Malachi is picking up on that theme here in chapter 2. But the answer to that search is not first and foremost better ministers or better church leaders. The answer to that search is Jesus Christ. So the writer of Hebrews says that the Levitical priesthood could make nothing perfect, could make no one perfect. But, Hebrews 7 verse 26, he says of Jesus, such a high priest meets our need, one who is holy blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the highest heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who are weak. But the oath which came after the law appointed the Son who has been made perfect forever. In fact, if I can digress, it's interesting in the book of Hebrews that in the first seven chapters the person who is referred to as perfect or made perfect, if you like, is Jesus. So, uh, Chapter 2, he, uh, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Uh, uh, sorry, that's chapter 4. And once made perfect, became the source of eternal salvation for all those who obey him. Jesus is the one in the, in the beginning of, of Hebrews who's made perfect. In chapter 7 uh, through to 9 of Hebrews, I think, it is, uh, it's the law which made nothing perfect. The Levitical priesthood made nothing perfect. The law made nothing perfect. 
the second half of Hebrews, it's the people who believe in Jesus who are made perfect. So you might think of the Old Testament saints. Uh, They never received what was promised so that they only together with us would be made perfect. Or Hebrews chapter 12, uh, we've come to to the new Mount Zion. Uh, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect. So if you like, Hebrews is the book where the perfection of Jesus is transferred to the people who believe in Jesus. The law could never do it. And what's in the middle of Hebrews is the new covenant. It's the fulcrum, the high priesthood of Jesus and the new covenant. It's the fulcrum, if you like, which transfers the perfection of Christ to to become the perfection of Jesus' believers. Church leaders and churches still can't make people perfect. The law can't make people perfect, but Jesus can. He has become the source of eternal salvation for all those who obey him. We need his teaching, his words, his instruction, his sacrifices, his example. So what's God's solution to the corruption of the Levitical priesthood? Well, the immediate solution to the problem in Malachi's day begins in verse 3. Because of you, says God, I will rebuke your descendants, I will spread on your faces the offal from your festival sacrifices and you will be carried off with it. And you will know that I have sent you this admonition so that my covenant with Levi may continue, says the Lord Almighty. So in in the uh, immediate setting, God will deal with the corruption of the priesthood by rebuking them, by, by cutting them off. What he says he will do is he will spread offal, offal from their festival sacrifices on their faces. Now, Quite literally, and in fact other translations have uh, this, what he's doing is spreading the, the poo from the intestines, like if you like the intestinal uh, waste, the intestinal poo, there's no other way of saying it, spreading it on their faces. So that was unclean, poo was unclean in the Old Testament sacrificial system in more ways than one. And so what God is saying in a very graphic way, I mean, this is deeply offensive. God is saying he's going to smear this intestinal poo from the sacrifices on the faces of these priests as a way of saying, if you like, I'm going to make it clear that you're not fit to stand before me. So imagine that you're preparing to see, to meet the Queen and you polish your shoes, uh, and you iron your best shirt, uh, put on your best tie or perhaps your best dress, uh, and you're just about to go in to meet the Queen, and someone smears poo all over your face. That's what God is saying he's going to do to the priests. He's saying it metaphorically, of course. And I think we need to grasp this in all its Shockingness. It's not a pleasant reality. It's grotesque, in fact. But that's the point. It's not just any poo. It's literally, as I said, the poo in the intestines. 
when the priest brought the sacrifices, one of the things that they had to do was to slice the animal open and often they would wash the inner parts uh, and uh, often they would also remove the inner parts and they would, uh, on some occasions they would take them outside the camp and they'd burn them. So interestingly, in fact, in the consecration of the priesthood is one of the occasions where the, uh, the offal was taken outside and burned outside the camp. What God is doing, if you like, is taking the inner filth of the sacrificial animal and smearing it on the faces of the priests. It's a metaphor for God taking the inner reality of their lives and making it public. What's inside? The filth in the intestines, metaphorically the filth in their hearts, the bowels and so on were the seat of the emotions uh, in Old Testament, uh, in the Old Testament way of thinking, the filth in their hearts would be smeared on their faces for everyone to see. So they might go to the temple wearing their best priestly garments, looking their sharpest for that day, but their hearts are far from God. They don't revere God, they don't preserve knowledge, they cause people to stumble. They turn people away from God. It's a bit like when Jesus says that what, it's what comes out of a person that makes them unclean. Uh, or when he says that the Pharisees are like whitewashed tombs. They look great on the outside, but inside they're full of dead men's bones. God is highlighting in a particularly graphic way, a particularly offensive way, the inner reality of sin. Now we tend to think that sin consists merely often of the things that we've done. Uh, the, the missteps, the misdeeds. But that's not the only issue that the Bible deals with. The Bible says that we're not, it's not just the things that we've done, our missteps uh, that are the problem, but it's the whole makeup, uh, our whole makeup. It's that we're corrupted and diseased by sin. So if you like, the problem is not just that we've lied, but the problem is that we're predisposed to lying. It's not just that uh, you know, we use porn or lust after another man or woman. The problem is that we enjoy it. The problem is not just that we've wasted money, that we waste uh, the money that God has given us. It's that our hearts are inextricably drawn to greed. So the problem is not a superficial one. The problem is actually with our deepest instincts and desires. It's what deep down in our hearts we want to do. It's what we enjoy. I think it's so important for us to understand what the problem of sin really is because if we don't understand that, I think we'll have a great deal of trouble meeting the challenges of our age. I suspect the greatest challenge uh, of the church in the next uh, 10 or 20 years will be uh, homosexuality. We're told that homosexuality is not merely a, a, a matter of lifestyle choice, but it's a matter of identity. That's what uh, the gay lobby tells us. 
And in a sense, there's a, there's a profound sense in which that's true. There's a profound sense in which it's also not the entire truth. But to, but to say that uh, uh, all... Um, to say that all that matters, sorry, is that people avoid certain behaviours is to miss the point. To say to somebody uh, who is gay, well, all you need to do is to avoid certain behaviours, misses the, misses the deeper problem. The problem for the same-sex attracted person is the same problem that the rest of us face. And that is that our fundamental identity that our deepest and most cherished desires are actually awry. And so we need not only to be forgiven people but we need to be people rescued almost from our very selves. rescued from a creation which is deformed and unnatural. And that is not merely the problem for gay people, but that is the problem that infects the entire church. And indeed it's the problem that the Gospel addresses. Far from being bad news, that radical view of sin is actually good news. Because if the gospel only forgives us, then what hope do we have when we find that our deepest desires are actually contrary to the will of God? If sin is not as bleak as it is here in Malachi, then when our deepest desires are against God, we think to ourselves, well, what can God do to help me? For the person who struggles with same-sex attraction, who finds themselves almost instinctively attracted to somebody of the same sex, what word of hope for them is there? Unless sin is as bleak as sin is here in Malachi and unless the gospel is as profound as it truly is. That is, not only does Jesus forgive us, but through his powerful resurrection from the dead, he begins a work of new creation in us as well. That is fundamentally good news. Not just for people outside the church, but for all of us as well. Uh, if the sin which the Gospel deals with is bound up with our very identity, then that means there's no distortion no inner experience which is beyond the power of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. Well, in Malachi's day, God says the priests will be rebuked and that poo smeared on their face so that they will be shown for what they are. And they'll be shown for what they are, he says in verse 4, so that my covenant with Levi will continue. It's a strange thing to say, isn't it? That God will show the priests what, for what they are so that, actually, the priesthood somehow might continue. 
covenant is a, is a promise sworn on an oath, sworn on an oath of death. You know, if I don't do this, you know, I'll, uh, I'll chop off my own head, basically, is kind of the idea. And back in Exodus 32, when Aaron and the Israelites had built the golden calf, the uh, Levites had cleansed the camp uh, of the people who turned away from God. And as a result of that, as a result of their faithfulness, God had promised that they would be set apart. And then later on in Numbers 25 as well, a priest by the name of Phineas, you might remember Phineas in Numbers 25, he did something similar. Uh, He cleansed the camp uh, of sin and God had said to Phineas on that occasion, Phineas, son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned my anger away from the Israelites for he was zealous as I am for my honour among them so that in my zeal I did not put them to an end. Therefore, God says, Tell him I'm making my covenant of peace with him. He and his descendants will have a covenant of lasting priesthood because he was zealous to the honour of his God and made atonement for the Israelites. Or listen to what God says through Jeremiah. For this is what the Lord says, David will never fail to have a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel, nor will the priests who are Levites ever fail to have a man to stand before me continually to offer burnt offerings to burn grain offerings and to present sacrifices. God promises that in exposing these priests, he will be faithful to that covenant with Levi. That is his covenant that there will always be people who serve before him in his presence. The purpose of the priest was to serve in the presence of God and God had promised a perpetual priesthood. But with God casting off uh, the priests in Malachi's day, how would that promise be fulfilled? And that question, I suppose, takes us to the beginning of chapter 3. All that stuff about priesthood and sacrifice is important because at the beginning of chapter 3, God announces that he's coming back to the temple. So verse 1, See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. Disturbingly, the people had, had been saying among themselves, Where is God? I can't see God. He's not anywhere to be seen. And then God says, well, don't worry, I'm coming back. But actually, God coming back is is not going to be such a wonderful thing. Because verse 2, who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? If the priests can't stand in the presence of God, who can? Do you remember Isaiah? In Isaiah chapter 6, he catches a glimpse of the glory of God. And he says, woe to me. I'm ruined because I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. I think Alec Motia, in writing on that verse, he says, it's the slightest of sins. There's unclean lips. But it, it makes... Isaiah unfit to stand in the presence of God. Who can endure? 
Who can stand when he appears? But ironically, it's God coming near that actually solves the problem of the corrupt priesthood. So the purpose of God coming near is to purify and to judge. So verse 2, Who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness and the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in days gone by, as in former years. God will come as a refining fire and launderous soap. I love that. One of my favourite favorite verses in the Bible. I, I, I just love things to be clean. <laughs> I love the idea that God comes as soap. God comes like soap to clean up his people. Now I suspect the soap that they're talking about is probably a little bit more abrasive, uh, a little bit more caustic than the kind of soap that we uh, might use in our households because the alternate imagery is a refining fire. When you purify silver and gold, you might know, you heat them up to a high temperature and all the dross, all the rubbish kind of floats to the top and you can just scoop it off and what you're left with is the pure metals uh, at the end. God is coming near to purify and to cleanse his people so that finally he will have a holy priesthood, a people belonging to God. He'll finally have people who bring righteous offerings. Remember chapter 1 with all those dodgy offerings. Finally have people who can stand before him and who can bring righteous, pure, clean offerings. But how do you clean people's insides? How do you do that? How do you cut a person open and wash out their heart? In a sense, that's what the Old Testament sacrifices were all about. They saw it acted out every day. Cut open the sacrifice. It was supposed to be a blameless sacrifice. You'd wash out the insides, you'd take all the filthy bits away and you'd burn them somewhere, somewhere else. How do you wash out a person's insides? You can't do it with soap. You can't put a person through a fire and scoop off the bits of rubbish. But cleaning up our insides is exactly what God promises to do in Jesus Christ. You see these challenging words in Malachi, but then read in the New Testament, in the words of the Apostle Peter, that through Christ we are a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Or again, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Or these words in Hebrews chapter 10. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body, 
And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, or a guilty and evil mind, if you like, and having our bodies washed with pure water. Can you imagine how good those words must have sounded to the Jewish people brought up and schooled on the prophecy of Malachi? Can you imagine what it would be like to, day after day, hear those words and to think to yourself, who can stand in the presence of God? Who can endure when he appears? He's like a refiner's fire. And then to hear the writer of Hebrews say, we have confidence to enter the most holy place. Not just the holy place where the priest could go, but the most holy place. Every sin forgiven. Everything inside which is distorted and wrong cleansed and taken away and made fit for the presence of God. And the writer of Hebrews says, we can have confidence already now. So you might feel your ongoing inner corruption keenly. Ongoing pride, ongoing selfishness, ongoing lust, ongoing greed, ongoing idolatry, ongoing unkindness. And the message of the gospel is that if you are in Christ, you are forgiven, cleansed, perfect in Christ. And even now we can come with boldness into the presence of God. In fact, God lives in us. Isn't there that beautiful verse in John's Gospel that he has come, the Father and Son have made their home in us through the Holy Spirit. Wesley Hill uh, is a Christian theologian who struggles with same-sex attraction and he's written an incredible book, I think. It gives a wonderful insight uh, into uh, Christians who struggle with that particularly uh, difficult, I think, uh, inner reality, inner sinful reality. But the title of his book is a wonderful statement of the Christian experience at large. The title of his book is this, Washed and Waiting. Because that's our present reality, isn't it? Cleansed by the blood of Christ, the Holy Spirit guaranteeing our eternal inheritance, and yet still marred by sin. They never received what was promised, says the writer of Hebrews, so that only they together with us would be made perfect. You've not come to Mount Sinai to such a voice speaking that those who heard it begged that no further words be spoken. No, you've come to Mount Zion the city of the living God. 
to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect. You have come to God, the judge of all men. Perfect in Christ now. Perfect in Christ at last. Well, what a message that must have been to the people in Malachi's day who defiled God with their offerings, who defiled God with their priestly service and God says, I'm coming back to refine you but not as silver. The flip side of that is in closing, God's purifying work in judgment. Verse 5, God says, I will come near to you for judgment. I'll be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers and perjurers, against those who defraud labourers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless and deprive aliens of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord God Almighty. God is coming back to dwell with humanity in a remade, recreated world. It will be a cleansed world and God will cleanse the world either through the gospel or, if you like, both through the gospel and through judgment. If you like, it's that message of John the Baptist that he will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and with fire the spirit to cleanse those who believe in Jesus and the fire of judgment to destroy those who reject Jesus and and who hang on to sin. John the Baptist says in Matthew chapter 3, I baptise you with water for repentance, but after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. He will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. God's return is a wonderful return but it's also a terrifying return. Jesus says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Let me pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, thank you for your amazing grace to us in the Gospel. When we see in Malachi the reality of sin exposed before our very eyes, our inner desires and instincts ripped out and laid bare. Lord, we ask ourselves, who can endure the day of your coming? And yet, Lord, the wonder of the gospel is that by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, we can endure the day of your coming and we can have boldness already now Because in Christ Jesus, 
we are forgiven, cleansed, washed, and waiting for that great day, a day when we will see you in your glory and not be afraid. Lord, we pray that by your grace you would enable us to embrace the good news of sin dealt with in all its ugliness. Through Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.